Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud9Fit, the podcast where we discuss the latest trends in high-yield bonds, leveraged loans, and the ever-expanding world of private credit. I'm your host, Will Cager-Smith, and today we're going to focus on how private credit funds value their investments. So this is a super hot and occasionally contentious topic given the growth of the private credit industry and the increasingly uncertain economic outlook these days. And this week, I'm going to hand over to Bill Weisbrod, one of our deputy editors. He had a fascinating chat earlier this week with Brian Garfield, who's a managing director at Lincoln International, and he helps provide marks for private credit portfolios. So without further ado, uh, so and we can get right to it. What is it like valuing a private credit portfolio these days, just given the overall environment of rising rates and inflation? And anything else that you think is, uh, you know, noteworthy, you know, in the economic backdrop? The way I'd frame things is that, you know, whenever you're valuing a level three security, it's critical to understand the inputs um, and underlying data that are going into your valuation models. And for your benefit of your the audience here, you know, a level three input, a level three security be one that's not, you know, traded. Um, and therefore, you know, really encompasses a lot of the private credit, the private credit landscape that we're going to be talking about about today. And so, the key things that you know go into private credit valuations um, will be a few components. One, um, with each of the private credit valuations, you always will start with the enterprise value of the underlying company, and or assessing the collateral value that sits and behind the debt that these private creditors are investing in. And then um, from there, you know, assuming that there's full coverage of the debt, and maybe we could just use a uni tranche by way of example, that the, that the unit tranche is fully covered. The next step is to assess the credit metrics itself. And the credit metrics for private credit, you know, are going to include first, you know, the legal documents associated with the credit agreement and assessing the contractual cash flows of the underlying instrument itself. So what is the pricing, the maturity, um, any call protection that might be in place, the velocity of any amortization payment, the frequencies and things of that nature. And then what's really critical at the end of the day is the discount rate that you apply to those cash flows. Um, Lincoln um, does a lot of work in the private credit space. And, you know, one of the key elements to valuing private credit is assessing the fundamentals of the underlying portfolio company. Uh, and that is another key element. So you have your, again, your cash flows, contractual cash flows, and then you have your discount rate assessment, which is going to consider both interest rate changes as well as the credit quality of the underlying um, instrument, like I said, a uni tranche that we might be valuing in a particular instance. Well, to that point, um, what can you say about how private credit backed borrowers are faring performance wise and cash flow wise, um, you know, given that rates are, uh, you know, LIBOR SOFR spreads are higher than they were a year ago, two years ago, and inflation is an issue. Um, what are you seeing? Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, I think the way that I would describe it is uh, in terms of the health of the private markets, we've continued to see 
um, similar themes over the course of 2022 and then into 2023. Interestingly to note, we value about 4,500 portfolio companies on a quarterly basis at Lincoln. And when we break down the fundamental performance, we do so by aggregating all of the information that we receive for all the portfolio companies we value into a database. And there's a couple interesting factoids that I you know, would love to share with you about the health of the private markets. The first is a theme that we saw throughout 2022, which is that there was strong top line revenue growth. In fact, 80% of the portfolio companies that we valued were growing revenue year over year. On the flip side, however, only 60% of those portfolio companies were experiencing EBITDA growth. So you think about all the demand on the top side, um, which is crucial to driving the 80% growth we were seeing, but then only 60% of them growing on an EBITDA basis. And what's led to that is we've seen a little bit of margin compression and an inability to pass on 100% of costs onto the underlying uh, you know, end customer. And so that's been a little bit of a theme that we saw in 2022. And we, you know, have really seen the same, you know, unfold over the last, you know, the first couple months of, of the year. With that being said, I would still say there's resiliency in the private markets in terms of uh, the strength of EBITDA, because if you look at the actual numbers, there is still growth being observed in, in EBITDA. Um, on an aggregate basis. And I think that that's quite telling. So just to give you some stats there, year over year EBITDA growth in 2022 still clocked in at about 8.7%. So we're still seeing growth um, and we're just seeing a bit more margin compression than we had seen in the past. And therefore the pace and the percentage of growers, not really the pace, I should say the percentage of growers is down to that 60% threshold that I mentioned earlier. And then what about, you mentioned enterprise value um, as well as a key factor. Um, what are you seeing there in terms of private company total enterprise values uh, over the past year or past few months? Um, you know, given, you know, I assume you're using, and tell, correct me if I'm wrong, using uh, public company comps, which have been down. So what are you seeing in uh, private company enterprise values that you're using? So LinkedIn International actually publishes a private market index whereby it compares um, and measures the change in the fair value estimates and conclusions across its private market data set on a quarterly basis dating back to 2014. In Q4 of 2022, the LPMI, which is the LinkedIn private market index, actually increased 1.6%. The interesting thing is while we saw a tremendous amount of volatility in the public markets, there was more stability in the private markets, but the two indices have converged largely as we ended the year. We're still going through um, the lion's share of the valuations for the first quarter, but the themes have generally been consistent with what we've seen you know, historically, that fundamentals are a key driver to the growth in the Lincoln private market index. Um, so all that being said, it, you know, it, would it be fair to say, you know, private company valuations and private credit uh, loan marks, um, you know, 
coming down and you know how how steeply uh are they how steeply are they coming down if so and you know can we and i guess the last part of that question is what publicly available information is there out this you know our publicly listed business development companies a um a fair proxy for uh how um other types of private credit and you know illiquid credit corporate credit corporate loan holders are are faring in terms of their portfolios so I, I think everything is relative to when you you set the marker in terms of saying you know when is something down so to give you kind of by way of of, of comparison when you think back to q4 of 21 the average private loan value that lincoln was deriving was around 98.8 it's called 99 ish um since that point in time we've seen a gradual decline in the price of the arrogant private loan data set um, dropping to and clocking in at about 96.3 percent as of q4 2022. as you think about what's gone on in the markets more currently uh the the way that i, I would describe it is that every portfolio company um, and each market is exposed to different factors um, and the size of the underlying business, the space that it operates in are all critical factors in order to determine what the right return is for the underlying piece of debt that you're valuing. And those will all be considerations that Lincoln would take into account when, when doing its valuations. And so it really just depends on which market you're sitting in, you know, what size market you're sitting in um, to really garner, uh, you know, a, a, an indication of what the change might be. But that being said, I would expect that Q1 um, to be relatively consistent with where we were in Q4. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that that relative consistency can very much change, you know, up or down based off of the factors I mentioned earlier, including, and importantly, the fundamentals of the underlying portfolio company that you're valuing. So a strong fundamental business um, with uh, a healthy fixed charge coverage ratio, healthy interest coverage metrics, low leverage profiles, uh, is going to you know fare better than a business that has tight fixed charge coverage ratio um, and potentially uh, more liquidity concerns as a result. Um, any sectors uh, that you see falling into the uh, latter or the former uh, category? I think where the the focus of you know outperformers is going to be on mission critical businesses that have uh, recession resiliency. Uh, behind them. And, you know, that's where we've seen a lot of dry powder, frankly, go towards is attractive portfolio companies. And those that are recession resilient. And that 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 I would say is a very uh, healthy space in general, right now. Um, businesses that have more cyclicality to them. Uh, those are areas that likely require a higher return profile. Any examples of more cyclical businesses that, or or, or mission critical businesses that uh, not not in, not individual businesses, but sec you know specific sectors um, that you can 
think of? Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, so, so it's an example of something that um, probably, you know, would, would be a little bit more uh, less recession resilient might be some, some consumer brick and mortar businesses, for example. Um, those those are, are good examples um, that are less recession resilient and are really a function of consumer spending. And so we'll see, you know, how things unfold. Um, and there's certainly always needles in the haystack there, but that would be a general uh, generalization. Gotcha. Um, and to the point of um, of uh, you know just actual numbers and actual marks. Um, how how much are how much can we learn from looking at publicly listed business development companies uh, as a proxy for how private credit portfolios are performing? So you know BDCs you know they'll disclose their marks on the positions that they value, um, and you know in terms of what that tells us is you know it tells you generally about the health of the private credit markets um, and what the expected arm's length transaction would be as determined by um, the BDC and, and the BDC itself. And a lot of these BDCs also have third-party valuation uh, firms that are uh, a part of the process in, 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 in assessing or providing some level of assurance of the valuations that are reached, but ultimately it is the BDC that is responsible for determining the valuations that get reported. It's it's definitely on them. Um, so, but it does tell you a little bit about the valuations and what what the valuation expectations are for the for the private credit space. Or would you say that private credit? Would you say that B, uh, BDCs? You know, given as you said, they they disclose their marks publicly. Would you say that you know the the way those marks are faring and the way those portfolios are faring is roughly in line with what you're seeing from um, the remain the rest of the private credit space, or would would you say that there's any kind of discrepancy or difference? Well, I would say it's largely in line with what we're seeing. Yeah, you know, and I think it's you know, like Lincoln produces its Lincoln Private Market Index. Um, but also produces a Lincoln Senior Debt Index, and it would be quite easy for a third party to benchmark um, their portfolio against the Senior Debt Index that Lincoln publishes, which has a robust set of private credit instruments um, that that back it. That back it. Gotcha. Um, so. On a slightly different topic, but to the point of level three securities um, being illiquid, from where you sit, um, well, for one thing, how has your job changed, you know, if at all, given the advent and the rise of these multi-billion dollar jumbo unitrunch deals that are um, more widely held than, uh, say, a, a lo valuing a loan that's... Um, you know, held by say two, three, four, five parties, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen is that there's been an increase in the number of private credit positions um, in jumbo unitranche deals. Um, but in terms of how you go about executing the valuations, it's it's quite 
similar. Um, with that being said, the return requirements for different size markets vary. Uh, so a larger deal is not the same as a deal that is, let's call it sub $15 million in EBITDA, for example. Um, there's different data sets to look at and the different data sets will generally have um, some form of consistency in the changes in spreads period over period, but uh, there also could be differences. And it's important that you evaluate the underlying instruments on the basis of their exit market. And so a $15 million EBITDA business versus a much larger EBITDA business will have a different spread requirement as a function of that. From where you sit, can you tell how much secondary trading their activity there is among private debt deals, especially given the um, increased prevalence of some of those bigger, more widely held deals? Not from my seat. I mean, it's not, that's not really something that I personally would you know, be exposed to. Gotcha. Um, and one other thing we've we've covered is sort of the tension um, among private credit groups related to MFN pricing protections and how some borrowers have been trying to suppress the uplift uh, to spreads um, while you know not not necessarily earning any earning themselves any new fans among the, their existing borrower groups who felt like they they were entitled to an uplift. Um, when you know when add-on loans were were done, is this something you've seen at all? Uh, it, the impact of in any portfolios, MFNs, MFN uh, protections, and um, and add-on deals. We have seen that MFNs kick in um, with the rise in the incremental term loans, particularly in the back half of of last year, um, and that you know that is something that. We have we have seen yes. To a similar point, um, you know, just how has your job changed since you know in valuing private credit portfolios since the you know the ultra low interest rate era, era uh, to where we are today? You know, how's your job? How's your job different? So the 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 job is different in the sense that there are significantly more parties that are looking for third party valuation services. Um, and I think that that's not necessarily related to the rising rate environment, but just the general environment to get more eyes on the valuations and the marks that are being determined and bringing a third party in to provide that perspective. So from that point, point of view, the job is just effectively, the execution of the work has been the same, the standard of fair value and how you value these Unitronch loans and other types of debt instruments has not changed, but the volume in terms of the number of parties that are seeking third-party valuations certainly has risen over the last several years. Why? Why is that? Well, I think that you know determining marks is extremely important, a part of the process, and having a third party provide that independent lens and independent perspective provides transparency. Uh, for the underlying investor base. And so we're seeing that rise in third-party valuations and the use of Lincoln, for example, increasing as a function of a way to enhance processes and provide transparency. 
Uh, it's just because there are more funds out there, are more fund managers out there, or more, or because they're um, they're just the same, you know, similar number of, of managers and funds, and they're just looking for um, th there's just increased demand from them. There's both going on. I mean, over the last several years, we saw many new private credit entrants um, in the marketplace, and on top of that you've seen the expansion of the asset class within managers. And so for both reasons, there's been, you know, increase in velocity of valuations that you know, Lincoln is executing. Gotcha. Um, all right, well, to put you on the spot a little bit, you know, just given the, the window that you have into um, cash flows, interest coverage, um, you know, how do you see private credit borrowers faring, you know, for the, say, the rest of this year through this summer, um, you know, given as we discussed everything that's going on and, and, and the risk of a uh, possible recession, um, could there, could some companies be facing liquidity crunch, all smooth, you know, mostly smooth sailing ahead? Um, how do you see these, these borrowers and these portfolios holding up? So, you know, I think it comes down to that every portfolio company is unique. Um, and from a monitoring perspective, what, what you need to make sure you're taking into account are the core fundamentals of the underlying portfolio company. And in connection with that, monitoring the fixed charge coverage ratio and the assumptions that you're using in connection to um, your valuation analysis and the implications of, of what the liquidity profile is gonna look like is a real critical factor. Um, and that's something that a lot of people are talking about now. Uh, and it's something that Lincoln is closely monitoring um, and has closely monitored for some time um, as is a key metric um, in a rising rate environment. Yeah, that's something we've written about over the past couple months about how that's, um, you know, how that's, that's a metric that is increasingly under the microscope. I mean, what are you seeing? I mean, what are your expectations in terms of how, uh, how borrowers are um, going to maintain whether it's covenant compliance or just uh, maintain a comfortable uh, comfortable uh, ratio level well I, I can leave you with this that um, so as of Q4 of 21 Lincoln has a default rate index which measures the number of covenant breaches on a size weighted basis as of Q4 2022 that metric was 2.2 percent. As of Q4 of 2022, the metric was 4.2%. However, um, even though it has been rising, you know, steadily rising over the over the course of the year, if you look back to the height of COVID, the default rate index was in the nine to nine and a half percent, depending on what quarter you look at. So we're still significantly below that time period, but we have seen an increase in the number of covenant breaches on a size weighted basis as measured by uh, Lincoln's default rate. Yeah, how, I guess and then to that point, how many you know deals are are cov light, cov cov loose in the private credit space now? How many exist? You know what what what's the um yeah what are, what are, how just how how tight are covenants now in terms of uh, the the deals that are currently held uh, that were done you know say th three four years ago or two years ago. So. So what I would say is that the number of covenants included is certainly increasing um, in our, uh, based off our observations. 
uh, and the number of instances where we see more than one covenant in the covenant package is also increasing um, between, let's say, 21 and 22. So they're, they're both going they're both going up. All right. Well, interesting. Um, it should be uh, fascinating to see how things play out over the next couple months. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time. No, it's my pleasure. Um, thanks for a great conversation today. And uh, um, have a great uh, rest of, of, your, of your day here. So that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to Bill and to Brian for joining us. And to you, dear listener, as always, we're keen to hear feedback on this podcast. So please drop us a line at team9fin.com with any comments or ideas you might have. And don't forget to check in with our London colleagues next week for the latest on European markets. We'll be back again the week after that. So until then, as always, take care.